Larry King, a former CNN host, talk show host, he passed away about a year ago, last January. In an interview, he was asked if there was one person, just one person, that he could choose from all of history to interview, who would it be? And his choice was Jesus Christ. So the interviewer asked him, well, why him? What, what would you ask him? And King said this, I would ask him if he was indeed virgin-born. The answer to that question would define history for me. Now, perhaps because I've been studying about the virgin birth uh, for Sunday night and then again this morning, I've noticed it more. But I've come across more memes and more articles this Christmas season debunking or trying to debunk the virgin birth that I must admit it began to feel like there is a bit of an attack on Christmas. Recent numbers are hard to come by to who believes and who doesn't believe in the virgin birth. But I did come across a survey from about a decade ago, um, and it, it questions Americans with four questions about Christmas. The study was done in 2014 and again in 2017. And the sampling divides Americans up to non-believers and those who say they believe in Christ. So we're just going to pull out the numbers from those who call themselves Christians. So the first question that they gave them was, Jesus was born to a virgin. So in 2014, 90% of those who classified themselves as Christians said yes. Come 2017, that number had dropped to 85%. The next question they asked them was the manger. What, did the baby Jesus, was he laid in a manger? And, and 92% in 2014 answered affirmative. By 2017, that had dropped to 89%. The next was the wise man, guided by a star, who brought gifts to Jesus. In 2014, 88% believed that happened. It was a historical event. By 2017, only 84% believed that. And the last question was this. Angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. And again, in 2014, 90% who labeled themselves Christians said yes. By 2017, that had dropped to 86%. Now, I would have said yes to all four questions. So those who composed the survey decided to pull out the Christians and figure out who answered yes to all four. So in 2014, 81% answered yes to all four. Or 2014. By 2017, that number had dropped to 76%. And I think if we were to take another survey today in 2022 going to 2023 with the influence of social media, I believe it would be safe to say that those numbers have likely further decreased over the years. See, the sheer amount of information that's produced and believed without critical thought is enormous. There are all kinds of articles and stories out there And some by professing Christians that the virgin birth is just that. It's a story. It's a a later edition. It's a myth that the church made up. And it can become confusing as you read through them. Some are by self-purported experts. They've written 
articles. They have all these letters behind their names. They even have these fancy positions. At least they sound fancy until you find out that they're only one person in the whole organization and it's them. But such claims can be confusing. Not only to believers, but especially to unbelievers. They serve as a stumbling block. I'm amazed at how many so-called Christians now deny the virgin conception, the virgin birth of the Christ child. And that is nothing new. In the early 1900s, there was a pastor at First Presbyterian Church in New York City. His name was Harry Emerson Fosdick. And he proclaimed this from the pulpit. Those first disciples adored Jesus as we do. When they thought about his coming, they were sure that he came specially from God as we are. This adoration and conviction, the association with God's special influence and intention in his birth as we do. But they phrase it in terms of a biological miracle that our modern minds cannot use. Commenting on this sermon years later, Albert Muller, president of the, uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, states this. Thus, Fosdick divided the church, this is back in the early 1900s, divided the church into two camps. Those that he labeled fundamentalists, well, they believe in the virgin birth to be histor- a historical fact. And then the other camp compromised of enlightened Christians, Christians who no longer obligated themselves to believe the Bible to be true. They discard this biological miracle, but still consider themselves Christians. See, progressive Christianity's roots have been around for a long time. And it didn't take it long to spread. One of Canada's largest Protestant denomination in 1925, had proclaimed in their statement of faith the reality of the virgin birth. By the year 1940, it was removed from their statement of faith. Is the virgin birth that important? Is it something that we need to stand firm on? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this Christmas morning. And as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, as we look forward to times together today, we also look forward to time of reflection of what it meant for you to come. And the whole time you knew that ahead of you was the cross. And at the cross, you redeemed us. So we thank you for this time to celebrate. We thank you for your birth, for coming to walk among us and to saving us. In Christ's name we pray. So when confronted by this question, John MacArthur also had an answer regarding the virgin birth. And it was, this is a quote from his book, The Life of Christ. The virgin birth is an underlying, is an underlying assumption of everything the Bible says about Jesus. To throw out the virgin birth is to reject Christ's deity, the accuracy and authority of Scripture, and a host of other related doctrines that are at the heart of the Christian faith. 
No issue is more important than the virgin birth to our understanding of who Jesus is. If we deny Jesus as God, we have denied the very essence of Christianity. And I would agree with that conclusion. If the doctrine of the virgin birth or the virgin conception falls, then Jesus is just a mere man. And if Jesus is a mere man, then the doctrine of the incarnation falls. And if the doctrine of the incarnation falls, the doctrine of salvation falls. And if the doctrine of salvation falls, the Christian faith falls. It would mean that you and I could not, we, we just couldn't trust what we find in Scripture. Or that we could pick and choose what we wanted to believe in. And then Christianity would move away from worshiping the true God and it would become a worship of a graven image. Something that we have made in our own liking. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in Luke this morning, but turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. This is the time before the birth of the baby Jesus. And these verses set the context for our Christmas story. So Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived and this is the sixth month with her who was once called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I want you to notice four things this morning from this portion of Luke and what Luke does in this passage. First, he clearly connects Mary, he clearly states Mary is a virgin. Even the word chosen in Greek makes it clear. Mary is not only chaste, but untouched. Second, God is in it all. It's his will that will be accomplished. Look at the verses again. Gabriel was sent from God. The Lord is with you, Mary is told. Mary's also told, you have found favor with God. Mary was told that the child will be the son of the Most High and that the Lord God will give. And then finally, for nothing will be impossible with God. Telling Mary, it's all 
God. He's telling you and I this morning, the virgin birth was all God's doing. Third, the conception is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There's no bizarre event here. There's no sexual activity. The Spirit will simply come and cause a biological miracle for Mary to conceive a child. And fourth, Luke draws a conclusion. The result of this birth is going to be the birth of Jesus, the long-promised Messiah that Israel waited for. The fact that Mary is a virgin is a fulfillment of a prophecy. And that prophecy can be found in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read this. Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. Now, the key word here in the Hebrew is the word virgin. Now, there are some that claim that Matthew, who in his account of the birth of Christ, quotes Isaiah. There are some that say he interprets it incorrectly. He misapplies the verse. Well, that statement is based on a belief that the verse is incorrectly translated in Isaiah in the first place. Turn with me to Matthew now. We're going to look at that. The application of that verse. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of the Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. And when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So critics of the birth of Christ take aim at that word virgin in verse 23 of Matthew. I want you to follow closely with me because I believe this is important to our faith. It's important to your faith and it's an integral part of the Christmas season. So I want you to turn now with me to Isaiah. We're going to look at this verse in context where the original promise comes from. Isaiah chapter 7. And I want you to follow along in whatever translation you have. Isaiah chapter 7 verses 10 through 17. I'm going to use a little bit of a dynamic equivalent here just for understanding's sake. Start, Isaiah 7, starting in verse 10. Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as the heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But King Ahaz refused. 
No, he said, I'll not test the Lord like that. Then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of God as well? All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. By the time this king is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. For before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. Then the Lord will bring things upon you, your nation, and your family, unlike anything since Israel broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria upon you. So here's what's going on in these verses. If you look at them, Syria and Israel had joined together in an alliance, and they were wanting to conquer the southern kingdom. They wanted to conquer Jerusalem. So the the king of Judah, Ahaz, he was afraid. And the prophet Isaiah comes to him and he says, it's okay, don't worry. God's going to preserve the southern kingdom at this time. Judah will be fine. And God says, okay, just to calm your nerves, you name a sign, I will do it so that I can show you that I'll keep my promises. Well, Ahaz refused to test God. All of a sudden, Ahaz becomes super spiritual here. So I'm not going to test the Lord. Even though he had permission... What happens next? Isaiah, out of frustration, says, okay, God's going to give you a sign. The, the, the conspiracy between Israel and Syria will fail. But in the end, judgment still will come to Judah at the hands of Assyria. So the word in virgin in verse 14, in the original, it can be used interchangeably as a virgin, a young woman, a woman of marriageable age, a maid, or a newly married woman. See, context is so important. Context is everything here. I think George Sinclair says it correctly when he says this about this prophecy. So what we have in this prophecy, we have, and and we'll clear it up in a second, but we have what we call a near fulfillment, and we have a far fulfillment. So, There was a double meaning to this prophecy. Listen, prophecies in the Old Testament regularly have multiple meanings. A young woman in one case, while the true and greater fulfillment will be a virgin in another case. The Old Testament regularly has God keeping his word in several different senses. For example, in Genesis 3, the seed promised to Eve can both be a future biological son a line of provision, and the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, which was to come in the future. So Matthew, not the skeptic, is in fact reading the Old Testament correctly. But look again at Isaiah with me. Verses 15 and 16. And we're going to look at what the immediate fulfillment of that prophecy was. By the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong... He will be eating yogurt and honey. And before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. Now, we don't have time to go into it in depth this morning, but theologians believe that that near fulfillment that took place was 
the birth of a child by Isaiah's wife. So it was Isaiah's son that fulfilled this. They hadn't had children yet. They had their first child. Whether they were newly married, made in how it works, they were, they was their first child and he was the fulfillment. When you look at a double fulfillment, when you look at something with a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, you have to think about, has anybody driven to the mountains before? Anybody did on a drive across Canada or the States? Okay, I remember driving out to Colorado to work with a mission agency. And as we drove, you could see the mountains from a far distance. And they kind of looked like this. Then one day we got to drive through the mountains. They're rather far apart. It's the same thing with some of the prophecies in Scripture. There's a near fulfillment and there's a distance before the final fulfillment. And that's what we believe happened here. However, even with that information, if you were to look at verse 14 of Isaiah chapter 17, you would immediately think, oh, there's a messianic verse in Isaiah. So how do we connect verse 14 with the concept of it being messianic? that it spoke about Jesus Christ. I have some homework for you. Here's your homework. I want you to read with whatever version you have. I want you to read sometime this week, chapters 7, 8, and 9. And I want you to read it in your, whatever you read with, but I want you to find another translation. Whether it's the ESV or if you use the ESV, go to the Christian Standard Bible, the CSV. And I want you to also look at a dynamic equivalent, something like a New Living Translation, just to help you grasp the meaning of what's happening there. You can find them online. If you have a Bible app like Vision version, it'll be on there. You'll be able to simply click on what version you want to read from. And in chapter 9, you will find verses that are clearly messianic. We have interpreted them all through history that they point to the Christ child. And there are verses that you've heard at Christmas time. You've probably sung them. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And let me read those to you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So by the second century AD, Jewish scholars began to link Isaiah 7 with Isaiah 9. But what ties them together? Well, when you read those chapters, you'll find that it talks about them having to leave the land, Assyria coming, and then it talks about them returning to the land. They were going to return to Galilee. And that's what ties them together. The return of the land, the coming back to Galilee, and that in the future generations, they would be looking forward to an everlasting kingdom being ushered in, where the Messiah would lead from the throne of David forever. And they saw that that first Isaiah chapter 7, that the virgin shall be born, that there was more to it than just the birth of Isaiah's son. That that also spoke of the birth of someone who would sit on the throne of David forever. 
So, this is important. Because there are those who claim to be believers who don't believe in the birth of Jesus Christ. They believe that the the birth narratives that we have in Matthew and Luke are later additions to Scripture. Excuse me. So that's is where Matthew and Luke, as they view Jesus from the Old Testament, this is how they were viewing him, that he was the fulfillment of these prophecies. But did they get it right? Are they correct? Are we still reading it correct today? Well, let's think through a few things. Matthew. Matthew would have heard of the account of the birth of Christ firsthand from some very reliable sources. First, Matthew spent three years with who? Matthew spent three years with Jesus Christ himself. Second, and have you ever asked yourself this question? Whether the disciples or any of the gospel writers like Luke, you ever think they asked Mary? Hey, Mary, what happened? They would have known Mary. I know some people would think, well, that's an argument from silence. But I don't think we can discount it totally. Again, follow me closely with this. But in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, we find that Christ's family, not Mary, but his siblings, are trying to stop his ministry. They think he's a little loony. And then again, in John chapter 7, verse 5, John states Jesus' brothers and sisters didn't believe in him. But what do we know? Sometime from those verses until the, the book of Acts, we know it. sometime some of the siblings came to faith in Jesus Christ. We know that two of his brothers, James and Jude, both wrote books that are contained in the New Testament. So the most likely source for the birth narratives is not an addition later, but the most likely source is either from Mary or one of his siblings. And if you look at the detail, I think the source was likely Mary. Mary, what happened? That fits. Matthew wrote in 55 to 65 A.D. That's when he wrote the book of Matthew. Meaning, if you add up the years, it's quite possible that Mary was still alive when Matthew wrote his book. And that fits well with what we find in the Gospel of Luke, which we believe was written between 58 A.D. and 65 A.D. Luke used eyewitness accounts. Listen as I read just a few verses from Luke chapter 1. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. And we're not talking about the 12 apostles. Remember we talked about that when we went through the Sermon on the Mount? The early disciples, the early followers. So there were letters circulating, information already circulating. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, that's Luke talking. So, does this mean that Luke checked his sources? I think it does. I think it means Luke got together the information, then he started checking his sources. 
I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. See, the account of of the birth of Jesus Christ is no fable from a stable. It is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 17, or Isaiah 7, 14. All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin shall conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Another thing progressives like to do and unbelievers like to do is don't allow them to do this you, to try to trick you, trick you or trip you up. But they'll ask the question then, why didn't Joseph call the baby Emmanuel as the prophecy said? In fact, Joseph was told to call the baby Jesus. So as Joseph pondered what to do with Mary, an angel came in a dream. Again, from Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. But as, you, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, the dream that Joseph had wasn't some imaginary type of dream like you and I have at night. Yes, Joseph fell asleep. However, somehow the dream turns into reality. It's part of the mysteries of Scripture. But in the dream revelation, the dream turns into something real. So the angel was real. Joseph saw a real angel. See, it doesn't state Joseph dreamed of an angel, but rather an angel, a real angel, came to Joseph in a dream. One commentator stated it this way, Joseph did not name Jesus Emmanuel. Jesus' nature makes him truly Emmanuel, God with us. Isaiah told us to watch for Emmanuel, the virgin-born son of God. He will save us. He will reconcile people to God and to restore creation to its original beauty. We know him as Jesus, but we can also call him God with us because that is exactly who he is. So no, he didn't call him Emmanuel, but that's who he was. That was his character. So in a very real sense, he was still Emmanuel. And that's exactly how John presents the Christmas story. John presents the Christmas story a little bit differently in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Christ child was before all things. He was God, and then God came to dwell among men. God incarnate. 
100% God, 100% man. That's who was born on Christmas Day. Final comment. Can we trust the birth passages? Well, 2 Timothy 2, or 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, our belief is that God breathed into the writers of the New Testament. Much like a sail, when the wind catches a sail and blows it, that God breathed into them. And what they wrote by the Spirit was exactly what God wanted us to have. They wrote by the Spirit exactly what God wanted us to have without violating their own personality or style in writing. So I want to assure you this morning, with all certainty, that as you celebrate the birth of Jesus, you celebrate the coming of the long-expected Messiah, born of a virgin, as it was prophesied. The baby that lay in a manger some 2,000 years ago was and still is God incarnate. God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man. Don't let the world rob you of the joy of the celebration of an event that cross in our salvation. Faith is a reasonable faith. Those who make claims contrary can be both unreasonable and inaccurate if you take time to search it out. See, progressive Christianity has surrendered this doctrine. In progressive Christianity, they have a, a small God, a God that doesn't do the miraculous. I actually wish they would change their name because I don't believe they're Christian at all. As Dr. Wolverd, former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, who passed away almost 20 years ago to the day, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central fact of Christianity. Upon it, the whole superstructure of the Christian theology depends. This Christmas, as we look towards the birth, as we look at the birth of Christ, I want us to stand in wonder of what God has done for us, of securing our salvation, of the awe-inspiring story before us that we call the Christmas story. And that Christmas story is of worthy, of worth to be told again and again. It's worth to be told and shouted from mountaintops. It's a story of God's love for mankind. God stepping into creation to reconcile himself. And the birth of Christ really is just the beginning of this wonderful story. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your birth. And we thank you that as we look at Scripture and as we interact with it and as we think things through, our faith is reasonable. And we can trust in the fact that the birth of Jesus Christ was through a virgin that, that you were, you came as a baby and you were God still, 100% God, 100% man. And in coming, 
You came to save us. So, Father, this is a story, the most wonderful story in the world, and we thank you for giving it to us, and we thank you for our salvation. In Christ's name we pray.